All right, let's go ahead and get started this morning. Um, let's start with prayer, and then we will uh, jump in. Lord, I am so thankful that you are a God who cares for us, who understands us and knows us and our innermost parts. You know the things that cannot be seen. Uh, you are able to provide hope and help uh, for things that we feel so inadequate to help with. I pray that as we go through this study over the next six weeks, that it would be helpful to us and, and equipping us to interact with uh, the world in which we live, with the people who we care for, that this would equip us to help others well and also equip us ourselves to deal with suffering and, and struggles that we might be facing internally. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier this week, I was talking to Caleb in the office about how I felt like I had this big pile of stuff to say, and at the same time, didn't know how to organize it to say it coherently, and had kind of struggled in my preparation. And a warning, we're going we're gonna to start off a little bit dark here this morning, uh, in spite of the cheerful surroundings. Um, and I was dealing with it as a very academic sort of approach of body, soul, that, that interaction between the two and, and trying to wrestle through it. And that's when, actually in a moment of procrastinating my studying on this, I went on Facebook and I saw a post from someone I haven't seen in years but his brother was a close friend and a member of my church in Wisconsin. Uh, his brother was a student at Maranatha, uh, where both Mark and I went to college. And he would drive up to our church an hour and a half away from school every Sunday morning with a group of students and attended our church there in Wisconsin. And so this is a kid who hadn't had a lot of healthy church background, very much would have considered me his pastor, like the, the, the pastor who's cared for him the most. Well, in the spring of 2017, uh, Tyler was his name. He came to me and said, hey, this is my last Sunday. I'm going back home. I'm too depressed. I cannot continue to deal with school. And this kind of came completely out of nowhere. Not a guy who you would have said seemed like he was depressed seemed like he was struggling just out of nowhere he he came to me and so talked to him prayed with him sent him home tried to reach out to him occasionally over the coming months never responded well um back in, uh, a few months later i think in march or april i get a call out of nowhere from tyler that was the most giddy hyperactive happy person i'd ever heard from but Along with that was a lot of talk about hearing directly from God and a lot of, well, I mean, he just sounded crazy. Driving across the country to go to a concert that changed his life and all these strange things. And over the course of the, the two weeks after that and what still today is the most difficult pastoral moment for me, he, he eventually was diagnosed with bipolar and he was institutionalized for a couple weeks because he could... He was, he was so manic and also suicidal that it was just this, this, this crazy time. 
spent a lot of time with friends and loved ones of his, got to know his parents who I hadn't met before then, just trying to help Tyler through this. A few months later, Tyler came out of this. Like as he was in the, as he was in the mental hospital, he was starting to get better. He was starting to get stabilized. He was on some drugs that were on mood stabilizers that were helping him to get clarity through this. A few months later, he, he came up to visit us at church and his friends and was a completely different person. Not a bad person, not a worse person, a person with a completely different personality from the guy that I knew. Just completely changed. Well, um, moved out here, had contact with him over the years occasionally, but he got in a good church down in Atlanta and hadn't heard from him in a while because I knew he was in a good church. He got married, finished a Bible college degree from Boyce College in biblical counseling, like, seemed to be doing well. Well, this week I saw his brother, who I barely know, post on Facebook that he was in the hospital, that he had tried to take his own life. And that afternoon, when I saw that, three or four days after he had attempted suicide, he died. And so as I was struggling with talking about mental health, the closest person to me to commit suicide passed away. Um, and so it it really kind of refocused (laughs) what we're talking about today, because we, we live in a world where we are fallen creatures. We are dysfunctional at our very core. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's not sin. Right? We have all manner of dysfunction living in a fallen world. It is not a sin to have your blood sugar be hard to manage, but it is a dysfunction. It is not a sin to experience all sorts of things in this world. And we live in this complicated place where the interaction between sin and suffering is sometimes hard to understand. And, and we can err on either side of that coin, right? We can see all suffering as purely suffering, okay? Everything bad in my life is something that happens to me. And we emphasize and overemphasize and dwell on the suffering aspect of life. On the other hand, we can have an overemphasis on the sin aspect where everything is a sin. Just think of Jesus' miracles in his life as he's, as he's interacting with... <laughs> as he's, there's monsters in there. Uh, as he's interacting with people in the community that come to him and they're like, well, what's the sin? What, what, how's this man sinned? And Jesus doesn't even deal with the sin. He, he heals the man. So we live in this comp- complicated world. There are notes on the background in the first blank. The invisible parts of us are dysfunctional. The invisible parts of us are dysfunctional. They don't always work right. They don't work right because of our lusts and desires, which want wrong things. And they don't work right sometimes because just in a fallen world, we get cancer. We, we experience these things. And the mental health illnesses operate in this kind of weird uh, middle ground where it's not always clear if we're dealing with non-sinful weakness or sinful rebellion. And so hopefully... This series will give us some help in dealing with this because we recognize that our troubles in this fallen world are a complex mix of sin and suffering. And it is not always abundantly clear to us if we're dealing with sin 
or if we're dealing with suffering. And then we have the isolation that comes with this. And the problem of the, the life that we live in is there's the, the, the kind of, I don't want to talk to people. I, I don't want to tell people about this, this idea of shame. This week I was listening to my friend Tyler's pastor preach last Sunday. So he attempted suicide, I think last Friday. He passed away on Wednesday of this week. And I was listening to the sermon and I think the pastor made a, a good point about the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt says, this, I have done wrong and this is what needs to be done to deal with it. Specifically, repentance, restoration, and the grace of Christ on sin on the cross. Guilt, rightly considered, has a solution. I have sinned. And because I have sinned, there are steps that the Bible ordains for my response to that solution. I should go to my brother. I should get reconciliation. I should confess my sins. I should do all of these things. It puts us in a category where there's actually a response. Shame is this just isolating feeling of badness. I shouldn't have done that. I should be able to take care of this. But it never approaches the suffering, the situation, or even the wrong that I have done in a biblical fashion that seeks to uh, deal with the wrong. And so shame can isolate us. I really shouldn't feel this depressed. I shouldn't feel bad right now. My life is good. I have a good family. I've got great kids. I have a stable job. Everything in my life is fine. I shouldn't feel bad. Therefore, I can't admit to anyone that I'm struggling because that would just seem silly and seem discontented and and i don't i don't want to get help that's the idea of shame it's something that stops you from dealing with the wrong instead of helps you deal with the wrong which godly conviction and that that good sense of guilt do but then we also have this feeling of ignorance that that leaves us spinning our tires where we just don't understand what's going on why do i feel this way why uh, am I experiencing this? Will it ever get better? Is this something that's wrong with just me or other people think like me? And we feel so ignorant and we're just spinning our tires. And so, where is their hope? Well, the troubled life that we lead, the agony of the soul that we experience are not foreign to Scripture. In fact, they are anticipated by scripture. The word of God speaks to sufferers. It speaks to the hopeless. It speaks to those who are feeling uh, the weight of the world on their shoulders. My favorite book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, is a great example of how much the Bible understands the nature of the human condition. Sometimes when we're studying the Bible, we're dealing with this book that's so far removed in time that we, we feel a little bit of a disconnect between us and then. But when I read Ecclesiastes, sometimes I'm like, man, 3,000 years ago, that, how, could they, how could they connect with this? This is clearly written for us today. You know, like at, when I read it, that, that hopelessness, that looking at the world, the emptiness of the world, it just fits like a glove with the world that we live in today. And so scripture does give us Hope, but that leaves us with a dilemma. 
Because the world that we live in today deals with these things in a couple different ways. But we're left with this dilemma. Can the struggles of the invisible parts be solved through physical means? The invisible parts of us, the things that we struggle with internally, can those things be dealt with with physical means? And there's really two ways that our modern society approaches mental illness, approaches the the things that are wrong in our invisible parts. The first one is a medical approach, right? So there's this idea that we are bodies, pure and simple. We are bodies. This is called monism, the idea of the onlyness. All you are is a body. Therefore, every problem you experience inside of you is a body problem, right? So think about a secular uh, scientist who is approaching the world from a naturalistic perspective, meaning that all that's happening is natural processes. There is nothing invisible. Everything is, and by nothing invisible, like they think there's really small things that you can't see, but nothing spiritual. And so in that worldview, if my brain isn't functioning right, clearly there is a physical cause for that dysfunction. If I can fix the physical problem, I can fix the suffering, right? So there's that physical approach. Then there's also the therapeutic approach. The therapeutic approach uh, says that there's, there is a less physical thing that needs to happen. It's not necessarily a pill that's going to solve your problem, but if you just talk about it in the right way, that's going to solve your problem. And so if, if we as Christians were to interact with the world on issues of mental health right now, one of the things that people would... Um, would really not Christian, specifically biblical counseling approach to, to these problems would be they're anti-science, they're not dealing with the, the body of literature. Now, there's some real weaknesses in that point. Number one, the fact that we do exist in an immaterial sense. We are bodies and soul. Uh, but not only that, I am currently uh, in research for this, reading a, a textbook, Systems of Psychotherapy, that goes through all the different types of therapy. I find it super fascinating. I think most people would find it super boring, but I find it really interesting as it goes through all the different therapy models. But just in that sentence that I just said, this textbook that goes through all the different therapy models, do you see a problem? If they're saying we have the right answer, the Bible doesn't have the right answer. Come to us because we have the right answer. And here are the 20 different right answers that are somewhat mutually exclusive from one another. It just does not hold up as being the only solution. Same thing with... um, with antidepressants, things like that. I am not going to take an approach here that says antidepressants are always bad. I don't think that's within my sphere of expertise at all. I think that there are, there are potentially times when they are helpful. I'm not trying to say that they're always bad. However, if antidepressants are the solution to all, uh, all problems, all sorrows of the soul, then they should work. And the reality is that compared with placebo, more recent studies are saying that they don't. Compared with nothing they do, but compared with placebo, they actually seem to to not work that well. 
And then there's the fact that we don't know how they work anyway. We've stumbled on them by accident and treatments people are taking in a people are taking drugs for some other trial and in the reviews of them, they're like, oh, you're feeling happier. Okay, cool. Well, that's an antidepressant. And we don't know how it works. You can't take a blood test that says here, this is why you have depression. We use the phrase chemical imbalances, but you can't actually measure the imbalance of chemicals. It's basically coming from a point that says, this chemical causes this, this raises this chemical, and you feel better, so we're gonna say that it's the chemical imbalance that's causing it. And again, I don't want to take a super hostile, everything about psychiatry is bad approach. My friend, who committed suicide this week, was helped by being on mood stabilizers. He came from a place where you could not even have a conversation with him, and when he stopped taking them, he killed himself. So I I don't want to come in and be like, they're always bad. All of them are bad. But if we're saying the solution, the solution to this problem is pills, then they should work. But the reality is our world is like a blind man waving its arms and occasionally hitting something that helps. And we have a far more complex relationship between the body and soul. Which then, in our increasingly psychologized society, brings us to a place where problems of the soul are simply relegated to the professionals. They're the ones who are going to take care of this. They're the ones who are going to help you solve the problem. And the question, should I talk to my pastor? Should I talk to my therapist? Should I talk to my doctor? Becomes fraught with, well, you definitely shouldn't talk to your pastor. He doesn't know anything about this stuff. And again, that's not to say the doctor doesn't know anything. And it's not even to say the psychologist doesn't know anything. But the Bible speaks to issues of the soul with clarity. And so we are presented with this dilemma, this question, can the struggles of the invisible parts be solved through physical means? Fundamentally, we have an authority crisis. Who rules? Who speaks truth? Is it the Bible? Is it science? Do the Bible and science even disagree with each other? I actually argue they, they don't. Okay? Sometimes the Bible is misinterpreted. So when we read something like 1 Samuel 2.8 or Revelation 7.1 that talks about the corners of the earth being spread out, we walk away from that saying, flat earth, that's bad Bible interpretation. It's not that, well, science says the earth is round or a globe and the Bible says the earth is flat. Which one is right? Well... If you interpret one incorrectly, then you're going to get it wrong. And that verse is not saying that the earth is flat. But at the same time, back in the time of the Black Death, the bubonic plague, the church was the dominant power of society. And they said, this is a spiritual problem. So you know what a bunch of people did to try and protect themselves from the Black Plague? They went on pilgrimages to Rome. Do you know where the Black Plague was the worst? Rome. And so they said, well, this is a spiritual problem. They didn't look at the rats and the fleas. They looked at the spiritual problem and they weren't accurate in what they were saying. So it's not as if the Bible and science conflict. Truth is truth. The Bible is our authority for dealing with truth, but we ought to approach the Bible with the humility to recognize that sometimes we get it wrong, right? But it's not like the Bible says something is, is not true that is true, but we believe the Bible even because it says that it's not true. The Bible speaks truth. Truth is truth. 
but we must have the humility to understand it well. Because we cannot see the soul does not mean that it does not exist. And there have been scientific studies trying to measure the weight of the soul. And that was a a big deal. Like this guy who he would get a really sensitive scale and have people who are about to die be on the scale. And then he'd like watch and decide when they die and take a measurement on the scale before and after they died to measure the weight of their soul. Okay, this is not a replicated scientific study. Uh, but he did come up with an answer. It's a, it's a couple grams, according to, to this gentleman. But it's, it's not, right? It's not a physical thing. And so if we're taking this purely naturalistic approach, we might say this does not even exist. But the Bible would make it clear that it does. And so we submit to the authority of Scripture, not as if the Bible says something is true, that the rest of that every other evidence says is not true. They actually align with each other. Our interpretation is sometimes wrong. Christians who believe that all things are reliant on God should be the most humble of all. But we come to this saying that all that God reveals is true. And God's revelation is most clear in the words written down in Scripture. God's revelation is present in nature. Romans 1 makes that clear. But that is not as clear as what is written in the Scripture. But we can still get the Scripture wrong, just like we can get the revelation of God in nature wrong. But we trust Scripture as our authority. Nature provides us revelation. Science is a tool for grasping that revelation. But the Bible provides more revelation and deeper revelation about things that nature cannot speak to. Nature cannot reveal to us the nature of the human soul because it is not observable. It is not testable like that. So we go to Scripture knowing it provides more And even more significant than what it provides about us is what it tells us about the God who created us. If we approach human problems without the Bible, we may very well find truth, but that truth is going to be limited. On the other hand, secular consideration of mental health, or because of that, secular consideration of mental health is always limited because it does not understand fundamental reality about people. Who are we? Who are we is a question that only scripture can answer. And when you take a secular approach to that question, you are by nature going to miss out on parts of the answer. (coughs) There's going to be a blinkering effect where you only see certain things. You only perceive certain things. Now, might you perceive those things accurately? Yes, but you're not going to see everything. And so when we have a holistic picture from the Bible of who we are, we can actually have the skills and tools of observation, of talking to 10,000 people and comparing their answers. And that can be helpful for us as we seek to apply the scripture. But we come from this foundational understanding of who people are. If all you have is a survey of 10,000 people, you don't have any authority other than their perception and your interpretation of it. And so we must approach any question of the soul of people, starting with the foundation of the Bible. The foundation of biblical anthropology, a biblical understanding of the person. The best place in scripture to figure out who we are 
is the first three chapters of the Bible, because that is where we are made. And it tells us so much about who we are and what we should expect. And these secular scientists may come in with some understandings of the human body that I lack. And they come in with the access to large data sets that actually tell you helpful things about how people process different things. But they miss out on the fact that I am a created being. And my creator has determined things about me that affect everything about my life. And therefore, they are like blind men grasping in the dark. They're getting a piece of the truth, but they're not getting everything. And when they're getting a piece of the truth, what they're going to tend to do is they're going to miss other things or magnify the things that you get. Have you ever learned a new thing and then suddenly every single thing gets filtered through that lens? So in, in Bible study, one of those things is Calvinism, okay? So you, you get to a place where you're like, okay, I see the sovereignty of God and salvation in Scripture, and suddenly the whole Bible is about Calvinism, okay? We've all met that person. I have a, uh, we have a name for them. They're cage stagers. They're at the place where they should be locked in a cage before they can do any damage as they work out their theology because they don't need to be everything is Calvinism, Right? And so there's this, this blinkering effect, this, this, this misconstruing. We learn something new. That becomes the answer to everything. So take Freud, for example. Freud's a weirdo, all right? Freud, Freud is super weird, okay? Uh, but at his core, he's actually saying something that God said way better a long time ago. And then in his applications, he's screwing it up. So at his core, he's seeing this, this, this conflict between the id and the ego, like this conflict in between us. Well, that doesn't actually sound that unbiblical. He's misidentifying the nature of the conflict. But when you read Paul in Romans talking about the flesh and the spirit, it actually sounds a lot like Freud except making sense. Whereas Freud says it's all about... The, the mostly about our sexual urges and things like that and being repressed. But Freud has that magnifying perspective that he's like, okay, so there's this internal battle. Well, what's the internal battle? It's about sex. All right. So that means all of your problems today are because your mommy potty trained you too hard. And it's, that's exactly what he says. It's super weird because he's taking this little piece of this conflict and he's trying to add things to it. We actually have a great way to deal with the conflict that's internal to man. We're created in God's image, we're fallen, and some of us are redeemed. And so there's this conflict that goes on and Freud looks at it and he's like, conflict, I've got it, it's about sex. And then he gets followed up by his descendants who are like, yeah, maybe it's not all about sex, maybe it's about power. And so there's, there's this new uh, uh, psychodynamic therapy that's like, all right, this is, this, is, this is what it is. And all of these different therapies come in. They're like, this is it, this is it, this is it, this is it, this is it. And they focus in on the one thing, but they're half blinded. They have no, no peripheral vision. Or maybe the better way to say it, they have only peripheral vision. And they see bits and pieces, but they cannot make sense of it. So we start with the Bible. What does the Bible say about who we are? We're going to be in Genesis, so let's all turn there because we're going to just be walking through the first three chapters for the rest of our time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
So from the very start of the Bible, we learn something that's absolutely crucial to our understanding of ourself. We live in God's world. We live in God's world. He made it. Therefore, he has authority over it and he understands it in a way that we never can understand the world. The maker of the world understands the world. A lot of you know I'm pretty into board games. And I have this board game that I, well, theoretically, Walter and I and Jacob and I play it together. We're not so good at, at, at keeping up with it. But it's called Gloomhaven. The box is about this big, weighs 25 pounds, and the manual is 120 pages long. But there's this Facebook group where the designer of the game is active, and you can ask him questions about the rules on this Facebook group and he'll give you clarification on the harder rules to understand. Why? Because he's the designer. He made the game. He understands the rules because he made them up. He doesn't need to look at the, at the manual. He wrote the manual. And so he as designer has a level of expertise that I will never have no matter how many times I play it and then wait six months so that I can forget the rules and then play again. Uh, that, that maker has an understanding. Similarly, God, as the designer of the world, understands the world in a way that his creation never will. And we see straight from the beginning, this is God's world. One of the most, probably the most fundamental truth of the universe. God made it, it's his. And so we have the secular psychologies and secular medicine dealing with the mind comes in and do they believe that fundamental truth is true? They absolutely do not. And so as they look at the human soul, they miss the fundamental attribute of the human soul, that it is made by God. And so they might find some truth. They might see some things that are true. It doesn't mean that everything they see is incorrect. But they are missing the foundation of who we are, that we are God's. This is support again in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see again, we'll be back in that verse to talk about other things, but we see again, who made man? God made man. Therefore, God is the one who understands man in his fullness. Okay, back to that same place. We are made in God's image. Verse 27, following up on verse 26. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Just look at the construction of those two verses. They are trying to get us to see something here. How many times does it say, image of God? Then God said, let us make man in our image. Okay, so that he introduces it. Let's make man in our image. We might say, all right, so it's settled. Man's made in God's image. But that's not all he says. He says, let's make man in our image. And then right after it, he repeats himself and says, okay, we made man in our image. Right? Because the next verse, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. It's emphasizing over and over again, we are made in the image of God. Again, take the secular psychologies, take the medical profession. 
Can they truly understand man and the problems of man if they do not understand that man is made in God's image? They're never going to be able to understand it in its entirety. We have a unique position in creation of dominion. Verse 28. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God makes man, but God makes man different from the animals. Compare how much time in Genesis 1 God spends talking about the creation of individual animals versus the individual person, right? It's birds, all the birds. It's Uh, Animals that that walk on the ground, the creeping things, all of them, smushed down into like one sentence. But then we get to man, and it's deep, it's repeated, it's structured. We get to chapter 2, and then he does it all over again. He talks about the creation of man again, because there's this emphasis on the uniqueness of mankind. We have a unique position of dominion. We're not like the animals. We're not like the plants. We're different from them. Again, secular psychology and secular medicine treat us as if we are just the smartest of the animals, right? Because they don't have any other distinction besides our brain power, our, 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 our knowledge of ourself, our, those sorts of, our self-consciousness, those sorts of things that distinguishes us, but it's a measure of degree. It's just an exercise of the mind in a secular worldview. But the Bible would say we're different because God said that we're different. He made us different. There's something about us. 2-7, this is going to be really important. We're going to hit this next week more. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We don't see that in that description in the animals. There's something different. We are dust and spirit. Two parts, body and soul. Uh, We're not going to get into the issues of dichotomy and trichotomy. Are we two or three parts? That's not particularly relevant to what we're talking about. But we are body and soul. Two, Two different parts of our being, but they are united in one. They're united together. You see, there's an anticipation. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be reading it this morning uh, during communion. There is an anticipation of a resurrection. So when our body and soul are separated in death, something is disordered. Something is not, it's not right. It's still waiting for the future. Just dying and being separated from our body is waiting for the resurrection. We are embodied souls. We're not bodies. We're not souls. We're soul bodies. They are together. And so there is an interaction between the two of them. And that's where we kind of get into the meat of these issues. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. But parts of what we experience in our emotions are combinations of body and soul. So, for example, uh, Friday, uh, my family went to Universal Studios. We had a good, fun day. And we were driving away and there were just, there were emotions. Not, not, not misbehavior, just emotions. One child regretted their choice of not going on a certain ride because they were scared because everyone else liked the ride a lot and told them that they would like the ride a lot, but they didn't want to go. And so there was a lot of regret there. Uh, another child said, I don't know why, 
but I just feel like I need to cry. <laughs> because they're tired. Like that's why, like, there wasn't really anything complex going on there. They were exhausted. We were there from 9 a.m. until 9 p.m., and we're not spending amusement park prices on food, so we're, like, trying to milk it along so we can get to a restaurant afterwards, and then Panda Express closes at 9 o'clock and had, like, two things left, so then we had to go to a different restaurant, and In-N-Out has a two-mile-long drive through line, and so there's this very physical suffering going on tired and hungry and it plays into the emotions they're not disconnected how many of you with who are parents of little children when they're being crazy are like that kid needs a snack and are they responsible for their sinful actions when they need a snack absolutely do they need a snack absolutely are you going to give them a snack or going to be like first you must repent or i will not feed you uh no because we're embodied souls Right? The, the two play together, and a lot of this is dealing with the, the, the struggles there between body and soul. Uh, verse 15 of chapter 2. We're given law. We have a law. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So there's a purpose there. God put him to do something, and the Lord God commanded, saying, you, should, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, so he puts man in the garden. He says, take care of the garden and don't eat the fruit of this tree. There's a law. So as human beings, from the very beginning, pre-fall, God does not make rules as a result of the fall. Part of the essence of being human. That's an important question to ask. Does this happen before the fall or after the fall? Gender distinctions before the fall, after the fall. Well, they're before the fall. Some of the complications of those distinctions come after the fall. But is it pre-fall? Well, then it's just part of who we are as a human. It's not something that's happened as a result. It's not something we look forward to having restored at some point in the future. And here, law, rules, before the fall. God wants us to obey him. Verse 18, we're made for relationships. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. As humans, we're not supposed to be alone. That's not how we're created. That's not what we're created to be. Now, does the world disagree with that statement? On this one, I don't think it really disagrees too strongly with that statement. The world's all about relationships. Certainly misunderstands those relationships. But if we miss out on the essence of what it means to be human, are we going to be able to help one another well in dealing with these issues of the soul, these issues of, of the mind that we struggle with the way that we think? We need the foundation of biblical anthropology. Now stuff gets bad. Chapter 3. Verse number six. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We are sinners. We're sinners. Uh, we could throw in some stuff from the New Testament that makes it clear that we continue in this, Romans chapter 5, that we in the line of Adam are also sinners with him. But we are sinners. Does the world agree with that statement? Does some secular therapist agree with the statement that I am a sinner? No, they don't. 
And so even though a lot of the struggles of mental health are not actually a sin that needs to be repented of, the person who has the struggle is a sinner. And frankly, a lot of them are sins that need to be repented of. It's not just not sin, and it's not just sin. It's this complicated mixture. Uh, I think I can be depressed and not sin, and I can also be depressed and sin, and I can be depressed not as a result of sin, and I can be depressed as a result of sin. And it's complicated, and it's difficult to to work through that, but secular uh, society has no category for sin. So they're automatically going to misdiagnose a lot of the struggles of the soul because they just don't have a category for the fundamental problem of humanity that we are sinners. We are isolated, verse number eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Because of sin, we are isolated specifically here. We are isolated from God. But we could also add in some of the the, uh, effects of the curse, that there is strife between the man and the woman. We are isolated from other people as well. Isolation is part of who we are. We are ashamed. Verse 8, they hide from God. There is a shame in their sinfulness. We are not open about the sinfulness. We have shame. But fundamentally, verse number 15 gives us something that the secular psychologies also lack. We have hope. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so there is hope that the head crusher is going to come, that someone is going to destroy the power of the serpent. And so there is hope. The secular psychology have hope. Short term, maybe. Okay, they might say, you can feel better. We, we can help you. You can, if we talk through these issues, you might be able to have some insight on what's causing the struggle that will help you to feel better. If we get some of the things that are not working right in your body realigned, there might be hope, short term. But it doesn't always work. There are people who struggle with deep mental illnesses, things like schizophrenia or bipolar, and they struggle with them for their entire life and no doctor can fix it. Maybe they can give you a mood stabilizer, but how many times have you heard of someone going off their meds? Why? Because the side effects are not always easy because it's not pleasant to be on a mood stabilizer. And so when, uh, when they give this hope, it's not the ultimate hope that all will be made right, everything will be, be made new, that, God will, uh, that Christ will wipe away the tears from our eyes. It's, it's a much shorter hope than that. But be, if we approach with Scripture, we can give true, lasting hope to people. And so I hope this gives kind of an introduction, maybe raised more questions than provided answers. But fundamentally... This gives us the answer of who we are. And we don't need to reject everything that other people observe to say this is fundamentally where truth is found. Who we are, according to God, is at the heart of all of these struggles with our mental health. It's at the heart of our struggles with anxiety, depression. It's at the heart of our our struggles with maintaining a grip on reality even. This And so do not feel like we are on the low ground. 
that the secular sciences have the high ground on these issues. They don't. They have truth that they see. They have observations that they have made that may very well be accurate. But they do not have the foundation on which to stand that says this is what a person is. This is how they were designed to function. And so hopefully in the next five weeks, we'll be able to kind of piece some of these things together and talk about specifically, we're going to spend a week talking about uh, diagnoses and like the diagnostic statistical manual. We're going to spend a week talking about uh, drugs. We're going to spend a week talking about change theory, things like that. Hopefully it will be helpful to see that we do not need to be apologetic that we have the word of God as our authority in dealing with matters of the soul. We actually have a real strong point to stand on. The, the one who made us has told us who we are. Um, and that doesn't entail us rejecting everything. Okay? It doesn't entail us living in a corner and saying everything that any psychologist ever said is bad. Um, but we have authority and that's where we ought to, ought to rest. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this would be helpful and clear, that we would um, be able to have hope if anyone in here is struggling with these things, that we would be able to help those around us who are struggling with them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.